chapter number two uh, this morning, and we're going to look at a couple of other texts as well. <clears throat> um, the title of this morning's message, if you take notes, is Security in, in Difficulty, um, Security in Challenges. Um, we, we're obviously in a, a season as a people, as a culture, where we are facing challenges every day. We face difficulties each day of our lives, uh, whether they be physical difficulties with COVID, uh, whether they be um, political difficulties with the election coming up, maybe family difficulties, maybe financial difficulties. Um, there are some who have lost their jobs in this season or been laid off for a time, and they're not able to uh, function well because of that. There's a lot of different challenges that we face, and the reality of it is, is we all face challenges every day. And no one goes through a day without facing some challenge, and and when we face those challenges, it's an opportunity to respond in fear on one side of the spectrum, or to respond in faith, uh, to respond in the flesh, uh, which is ultimately what leads us to fear and, and being frantic, or to respond in faith, which leads us to to trust and, and be secure and be dependent on, on the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter writes to encourage the uh, people, the church, during this time. It's, this is the last days. This is a season that's spoken of to refer to the church being persecuted or the children of Israel being persecuted. And um, the Apostle Peter is going to give them some encouragement He's going he's gonna to tell them four things to remember during uh, challenging times that, w- that will help you and help um, others to persevere through these challenging times. And so I want to read the text to you, and we'll just unfold these four principles. The Bible says, if you'll join me in verse number 9, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, The Bible says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We can stop and meditate on that for just a moment. That is salvation. That is the gospel. That Christ has called us out of darkness. And we can meditate on what that darkness looked like. And each one of us has a had in the past a different darkness. Uh, it was sin, but, but it manifests itself in each one of our lives in different ways. But the reality of it is, is that Scripture is very, very clear that all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. When we compare our goodness to that of God's holiness, we, we then see how depraved we really are. Um, the Bible talks about our Every imagination of our heart is only evil continually back in the book of Genesis just before the flood. And that's the, the nature of, of mankind. From the fall, mankind has been on a constant decline. And each one of us can look into our own heart and we can see that we, we, are, we were in darkness. But he says that he has called us. This is an effectual call. He has, he has transferred us, if you will. He has taken us out of darkness and set us in the light. But he doesn't, he doesn't say in the light. He says he has transferred us out of darkness into, what's the next word? Into marvelous light. 
This is a descriptive word. He's not, this, is, this is not a miserable light. This is not a mournful light. This is not a depressed light. This is a marvelous light. The salvation that we experience today should bring joy to our hearts and a smile to our face. We should be excited about the gospel of Christ that we have been taken, we have been transferred from darkness into light. We have been taken out of that which was condemning, condemnation, and we have been set into freedom and liberation. Romans 8 and verse 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been transferred, uh, completely absent of any of our own works. The reality of it is, in spite of us, we have been transferred out of darkness into a marvelous light. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of the fact that the light that we've been transferred into is marvelous. It is wonderful. It is amazing. It is significant. We've been transferred by the gospel into this amazing freedom that we have in Christ. He, says, he goes on and says in verse number 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, were not, once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy, describing for us this marvelous gospel. We were not God's people. We were not children of God. But now we are children of God. We were not children of mercy, but we were children of wrath. Ephesians 2 says we were children of disobedience. But now we are children of obedience and we are children of mercy. God has um, satisfied, Christ has satisfied God's wrath towards all those who believe. And this is the marvelous light that we've been transferred into he goes on to say in verse 11 beloved i urge you as sojourners and and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul keep your conduct among the gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good works and glorify god on the day of visitation be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperors as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to shame the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil or not not using live as people who are free not using your freedom to be selfish basically is what he's saying not using i mean people will say well i'm free to do whatever i want so i'm going to live how i want what what peter is saying here is don't use your freedom that you have received by christ don't use your freedom to be become a, a worse person use your freedom to become a better person live as free not your freedom as a cover-up for your evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And some pretty basic and practical uh, implications, some pretty basic and practical uh, uh, commands here. Uh, We should honor everyone. We should love the brothers in Christ, love our brothers, fear God, and honor the emperor. If you know anything about the emperor during the time when Peter writes this, you know that that emperor was not a godly man. Matter of fact, it would be, he would be described as the opposite, the antithesis of godliness. 
He's telling them how to act. He's telling them how to live in a situation that is difficult. He's telling them how to live in a culture that is challenging. He's telling them how to act, how to function when things aren't going the way that we think that they should or in the way that we would like them to. He says, verse number 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. In other words, he's saying, be subject to your masters as an act of graciousness. What, is grace, what does graciousness mean? What does it mean to be gracious? It means to give somebody something that they, that they don't deserve, right? When he says to be subject to your masters as an act of graciousness, he's saying give the individual, give a person something that they don't deserve, such as honor the emperor, right? If you're living under the time of Nero where they are hanging uh, Christians from poles and lighting them on fire to light their walkways, you know that he does not deserve honor, right? He deserves the opposite of honor. But yet, the, the, the apostle Peter says, honor the emperor as a gracious act. Not because he deserves it, but as a gracious act. For this is a gracious thing when, when mindful of God, one endures suffering while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And the word endure there is not implying, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not implying kind of this like, oh man, I'm just enduring it. It's implying a gracious enduring. It's implying an active enduring. It's implying doing, it's like, Sometimes when we endure, we think of it as just not doing anything, right? If I don't do anything, then I'm just enduring. So we have a bad leader, so I'm just going to sit back and do nothing so that I can endure this, this process. And in four years, everything will change, right? Kind of the mindset of, of people. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about an active endurance, in other words, showing that individual something that they do not deserve, showing them something about Christ being Christ-like in that situation, even though they don't deserve it, as an act of graciousness. And remember this, folks. We as Christians don't show graciousness in order to get a response. We show graciousness because it's, what it, what's, it's what's in our heart to do. It doesn't have to be forced. Graciousness doesn't have to be forced out of us. It should be what naturally flows through us. We have the example in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 of Christ who was rich becoming poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. And in that moment when Christ did that, were we his friends or his enemies? Were we his friends or his enemies? In the moment when 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is referring to when Christ gave everything up, to make us rich, to let us have what he has. Were we his friends or his enemies? We were his enemies. We were not his friends. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, he goes on, he says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this 
you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the deceit, was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile again, or in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He did all that he did so that we could be new creatures, so that we could die to sin, we could die to unrighteousness, we could die to selfishness, we can die to self, and we can have a righteous life. We can have a, a holy life, a devoted life. And just a chapter before in 1 Peter 1, he, he calls us to holiness, to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. And then Christ makes it possible for that to take place. Christ becomes the mediator that makes it possible for us to accomplish what God called us to. The reality of it is, is Christ not only makes it possible for us to accomplish what God has called us to, but Christ accomplishes for us and, in, and then imputes to us the things that God has required of us. That was a kind of a flowing little statement there, wasn't it? Catchy statement. Christ has done everything that God requires of us, and then he gifts it to us by coming to live inside of us. It's almost like if you could think of all that Christ is in you, and that is yours now. Christ is yours. He is in you. Then you understand a little bit about what, about what it means to be righteous and holy. He himself, the Bible says in verse 20, 34, or 24, I can't read sometimes, 24. He himself, the Bible says, bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, which is a direct quote from Isaiah 53. By his stripes we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in this context of uh, this passage of Scripture, we have, we have some instruction, we have some, some counsel, some encouragement, if you will, for how to deal with life when it's challenging, when it's difficult. Um, join me, if you would, uh, back in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter 19. So I want you just to see the, the, the first part of our text this morning is a direct quote from two Old Testament passages of Scripture. It's a direct quote and it lays a really good foundation for us to understand what is Peter writing about? What is Peter referring to? It's almost like when a New Testament author quotes from the Old Testament, he's saying, remember that. Think about that. And in Exodus, he is writing to his people, the Jewish people, and he is going to use the same terminology that's used in Peter, that Peter basically quotes from, to encourage them in the same way. So what do we know about Exodus 19? What does is, what is Exodus 19 precede? What is getting ready to happen in Exodus chapter number 20? What are they going to get? They're going to get the Ten Commandments, Right. The children of Israel are, are getting ready to face 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? They're getting ready to face 40 years of challenges, difficulties, heartaches, 
pains, uh, all different types of challenges, physical, emotional challenges, um, financial challenges, mental challenges. They're getting ready to face challenges like we, that we can't understand or comprehend. And they're getting ready to literally wander through the wilderness for 40 years, right? Okay? We can't fathom that because we, we, we we're pretty comfortable. So what does he tell them in, in Exodus 19 just prior to revealing himself to them and, and uh, revealing himself to them and then sending them to wander in the wilderness? In verse number 6 he says, or verse number 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my, my treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God is speaking to Moses and giving him this instruction to speak this to the children of Israel. It's quoted in 1 Peter chapter number 2. He quotes directly from this passage of Scripture, getting ready to enter into difficulty. He says to them, if you obey my voice... If you do what I say, everything will, everything will be fine. Everything will work out. You will be my people. You will be a holy nation and a peculiar nation. Now, what we know distinctly from the Old Testament is these commands are meant to show the, to show the people that they were incapable of fulfilling and satisfying the commands that God gave, although they were supposed to work at it, so that they will then, in the future... When Christ comes, they will embrace Christ as the fulfillment of these things. Christ will be the fulfillment of these things. Christ will be the one who who keeps this command. Christ will be the one who keeps this command. Okay? So, we go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. It's all right. That sermon is way better than mine anyway. (laughs) It's all right. Leviticus, if you guys will, chapter 7, happens to the best of us, and the worst. So in Leviticus, not Leviticus, Deuteronomy, I was halfway there, Deuteronomy chapter number 7. So in Deuteronomy chapter number 7, we have what's called the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is known as the second giving of the law. And the reason for that is, is the children of Israel are getting ready to enter into the promised land. And the Lord is reminding them. So the first time he gives them the law in Exodus, he gives them the law in such a way as to prepare them. He tells them, this is what you're going to do. And, and, and obviously they're going to fail. They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and face great difficulty. So these are the things that he tells them to encourage them. Now they're getting ready to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy, and he's re-giving them the law to remind them the law. The law is meant to show us who God's character is. God doesn't change from Exodus to Deuteronomy. God doesn't change from the wilderness wandering to the promised land. God is always the same. No matter what challenges we're facing, God never changes. It's good to know, isn't it? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His, his character never changes. We can trust that he is going to do what he says, and, um, and he never, he's never going to fall short of that. So in Deuteronomy, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. And what we know right away when, we, when they enter the promised land is they're going to face difficulty, right? They're going to face wars. They're going to face challenges to their faith. They're going to face failures. 
They're going to face uh, uh, evil from other nations and evil from their own nation. They're going to face a lot of different things. And, and what, does, what does he tell them in Deuteronomy? He tells them the same, the same thing. He gives them the, the same uh, encouragement prior to them going in. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter number 7, the Bible says, verse number 6, For you are a, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has put his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenants and steadfast steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So he gives them the same reminder here prior to entering into uh, Canaan land. He gives them the same reminder that he gives them in Exodus prior to entering into the wilderness wandering. And then he gives them it here in, in Peter in Peter's instructions prior to persecution that's going to take place in the last days. The challenges that that they're going to face, um, the church is going to face, the children of Israel are going to face during the last day event. He he repeats it in preparation for what they're going to do. And we don't know... We don't know what our future holds. We don't know what next week is going to have, next month is going to have, or next year, or whether or not we're going to be here. We don't know if the Lord is going to tarry or if he's going to return. All we know is that we're meant to be ready and to be prepared and to function in such a way that while we're on this earth, we are living for his glory. And so there are four things here in this passage of Scripture that will help us, four reminders, if you will, that will help us to live... um, as overcomers, as Revelation talks about, to live as overcomers, to live victorious in the, in the challenges that we face. And so I just want to give you those this morning to encourage you. The first thing is he reminds them of their position. He reminds them of who they are. He reminds them of who they are, not just who they are as human beings, but he, he reminds them who they are as his children, he reminds them that they are, they are a part of his family. They are, they are his chosen people. And they're not chosen because they are big. They are large in number. They are powerful. Matter of fact, he says, I've chosen you because you are small. I've chosen you because you are insignificant. It's a 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 26 down to 31 passage where he says, I've chosen the weak things of the world. I've chosen the nobodies of the world. I've chosen the poor things of this world, the frail things of this world, so that... Christ might be extremely exalted. So everything that Christ does, he does for his own exaltation. So when he chooses a nation like Israel, it is that the nation of Israel would bring the greatest exaltation to Christ because of their insignificance, because of their weakness, because of their frailty. The Lord likes underdogs, right? It's almost like you, I'm an underdog kind of guy. I, when, when Jared and I sit down to watch a, an athletic event, we always ask each other, who are you going for, right? 
And so I always tell him, well, let's wait a little while and see who the, under, see who the team that's getting beat really bad, and that will become the team that I'm going to cheer for. That's, that's who I like to see come back and win or like to see some dramatic ending or whatever where the team that wasn't expected to win wins. The Lord is that way. The Lord is choosing weak. And, and it's interesting because we who are full, we who, are, we, we who struggle with pride, we want to not be considered as frail and weak and, and nobodies and insignificant. We don't want to be considered for the very things that God has chosen us for. The very reasons that God has chosen us, we, we like to resist those things because we have that, that struggle with pride. What he reminds them of entering into this time of challenge and difficulties, he reminds them of who they are. And we would say we would, we would be reminded today of who we are in Christ. Not, not just who we are, but who we are in Christ. Second um, Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, right? He is a new creation. If you, if you can imagine a, a, a dog becoming a cat or, or, or a lion becoming a bear. And we think of these things as being impossible. When the Lord says we're a new creation, that's the extent of it. We're not even the same as we, we were. We're not even close to being the same as we were before. We have become a new creation, a new creature, if you will. If anybody's in Christ, we have become a new creature. It is so important that we remember that. When trials and tribulations come knocking on your door, when physical difficulties and financial difficulties and family difficulties become knocking on your door, you need to remember who you are in Christ. You're no longer that old person that was there before. You're, you're no longer Jacob, but now you're Israel. You're no longer Abram, but now you're Abraham. You're no longer Saul, but now you're Paul. You've gone through a transformation and you're different. The devil wants to convince you that you're not different. But folks, listen to me. You're different. You're not who you were before. You're a new creation. And we need to be reminded of that. If we, we face in the next year, we could face a great deal of turmoil. Turmoil could maybe, well, I, I, I've, heard it, I've heard it said that 2020, we're all afraid of 2020, but 2021 might be worse. But you know something, as Christians, I, I don't mean to scare you, but as Christians, that shouldn't phase us. Because that, that, doesn't, that doesn't in any way affect what is really important to us, does it? If 2020 is worse than 2021, are we no longer a chosen generation? Are we no longer a holy people? Are we no longer those who have been chosen by God? None of those things change whether or not we have a great 2021 or a horrible 2021, Right? This is what we need to be conscious of. We need to be reminded of who we are in Christ because that is something that is stable. That is something that is secure. That is something that is not built on your performance and it's not built on your circumstances and it's not built on our culture and it's not built on our government. It's not built on anything other than what Christ Jesus has done for you. Amen? Isn't that good to know? Isn't that confidence-bearing when you are going to face a great difficulty that, listen, nothing about me that's important is going to change through this. Matter of fact, what really happens through trials and tribulations in Scripture is that those things about us that are not so important change and are actually made more significant in God's realm. In other words, we become free of ourselves more so by trials and persecution than we did before, which is actually a benefit to 
what, what God is doing in our lives, what really matters. He tells them four things. He says, you're a chosen generation. A chosen generation. That, that means that these people were chosen. Think about it. They were chosen to enter into the promised land. We've been chosen. Okay? Almost like Esther, right? Do you remember what, they, remember what Esther said? She was placed where she was placed for, for such a time as this. And back in, the, back in the Old Testament, the Lord says about the children of Israel, you were chosen for this moment. And listen to me, folks. We were chosen for this moment. Every one of us that sits in here this morning, we were chosen for this moment. We're a chosen generation. It references, it doesn't reference necessarily a, a people as much as it, it references a, a time. This generation, we were chosen to be in this generation. God has planted us here, placed us here, prepared us for this generation. We are a chosen generation. He says we are a, we are a royal priesthood. Two things about being a royal priesthood. Number one is you're a child of the king. You are a child of the king. You have royalty running through your veins now because Christ lives in you. But not only are you a child of the king, you are a royal priesthood. And being a priest means that you have direct access to the king. You no longer have to go through a mediator. You no, you no, you no longer have to go through anything that is earthly because you have Christ living within you and you have direct access. That's why we pray directly to God through Christ. We have become priests to God. We've become a nation of priests to Him that we can come to Him freely and boldly and confidently, Hebrews 4, and present our request to Him. We are a chosen generation. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. He calls them the fourth thing. You are a, a holy nation. You are sacred. That's what that word holy means. You are sacred in the eyes of God. You are pure, blameless, and heavenly. You are a, a holy nation. Now, get this. We know that we are a holy nation, right? When God looks at you and, and me, because we have been imputed the righteousness of Christ, when God looks at us, he sees us as completely holy, doesn't he? Do you need to be reminded of that sometimes? Because we don't often, we don't often respond to the holiness that is within us, do we? We sometimes reject that holiness, and we sometimes live out the fleshliness that is still on us. Not in us, but on us. We live out that fleshliness that's on us. And the devil condemns us for that, which presses us further into sin, doesn't it? What we need to be reminded of is that we are a holy nation. Not a holy nation based upon our performance, but a holy nation based upon Christ's performance. You are a holy nation because Jesus Christ lives inside of you, and that can never change. And when Satan comes knocking on your door to tell you how horrible you are, you just remind him of what Christ has done for you. Point him to Christ because Christ has never failed and never will. If Satan comes attacking you and you point him to some success that you have had in your life, I can guarantee you he'll find some way to defeat that success. But when you point him to Christ... Christ has never failed. Satan is afraid of Christ like no one's business. 
Satan was stomped by Christ when he resurrected from the dead the third day. Defeat is Satan's end. And he continuously, day by day, seeks to avoid that guaranteed end. But we know, according to scriptures, that he will not. We're a holy nation. We're a peculiar or or sacred, separated, pure, blameless people because of what Christ has done. But listen, don't let that that cause you to not pursue holiness because the holiness that is within us should become the holiness that is on the outside of us. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that we might bear that righteousness, display that righteousness to others. The fourth thing that he describes about our, about our position is that we are a peculiar people. This term just simply means a private personal possession. We're a heavenly property. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you and that you are God's? You are His possession? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are His. In other words, we are holy, we are peculiar, we are unique, we are special to God. We are His special people. Okay? We are his special people. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, it's not for us to decide that. If God has a special people, God has a special people. He decides what's fair. If you're a part of that special people, embrace that. And, and manifest that to others. And, and pray that God would bring others into that special fold. And preach the gospel so that others can come into that special relationship with God. But don't live as if you're not in an intimate relationship with the one who created you. Don't live as if God is not your father. Don't live as if you do not have royalty flowing through your veins. When you think about this, in the last several years, we've had, I can remember presidents like back to, um, I'm thinking of Clinton, but I'm thinking of kids of presidents and Bush too, kids of presidents, right? And you can always tell, they always they always pick at those kids and their failures, don't they? And you think, I remember Bush Jr., his kids had some pretty big failures and made some really big mistakes, and we, we've seen that kind of, kind of happen. I think we even heard of something recently of some other failures of past president's children. And it's a, it matters, doesn't it? Because their reputation is built, is built into their children. That's why the Lord says in Psalm 23, he says, He leads me in the paths of righteousness. What's the end of that verse? For his namesake. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. It is his reputation that's on the line. So we need to remember these four things. Our, our position, when we're, whatever we face in the next five years, ten years, our position in Christ, it never changes. It never alters. It never fluctuates. It never moves. The Bible says every good and perfect gift cometh from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. 
The idea of it is, is the blessings that God bestows upon us, these perfect gifts that he gives, they're, they're not like the shadow that follows you, that disappears sometimes and comes back other times. They're not like that. Every good and every perfect gift comes from an unwavering, unconditional Heavenly Father. And He's not going back and forth. The devil just convinces us that He is. So we need to know that our position is secure. The second thing that He reminds them of is this, that they're on a pilgrimage. He says in verse number 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that you may speak against you. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter number 5. That they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. He reminds them, secondly, that they're on a journey. What does it mean to be a pilgrim? What does it mean to be a sojourner? The idea is simply that we're strangers. The word sojourner means to be a stranger, a a foreign resident. Somebody who is dwelling in a place. And you think about this, going back to the Old Testament, they were getting ready to journey into other people's lands, weren't they? They were getting ready to journey through other people's lands, whether it be in the wilderness or in the promised land. They were entering into other people's lands. You're a stranger. You're a pilgrim. You're not meant to adopt their you're not meant to adopt their idolatry. You're not meant to marry with their, with their daughters or their sons. You're not meant to do that. You're to see yourself as a pilgrim, as a sojourner, as somebody who is a stranger in a strange land. This is what he's telling. The, this is what Peter is telling the people as they're getting ready to face persecution. If we do not understand that in the midst of the persecution that we face as Americans, that we are strangers... We are sojourners here in this world. This is why we're here. This is what we are. Stranger means a a resident foreigner, a person whose whose citizenship and loyalty belong to a different country. We're not of this world. We're of the heavenly world. We have taken on a new identity. Pilgrim means somebody who journeys to a strange place place away from one's own people and then we know in in um second uh, corinthians 5 that we're called ambassadors an ambassador is somebody who goes to another place but represents the place that they came from we are here as ambassadors that god hath saved us he has made us citizens of heaven right he has made us citizens of heaven and he has he has commissioned us to be an ambassador of heaven that's what we are We're ambassadors of heaven. And a bad ambassador goes in and doesn't represent his own country, but just falls prey to all of the ways and the the, um, evils of that culture. A good ambassador represents his country well. We are called to be ambassadors of Christ. We need to remember that. When we face whatever difficulties that we're going to face in the future, and we will face difficulties... We need to remember that we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are foreigners. We are ambassadors. This is who we are. To lose sight of who we are will cause us to to fall to defeat, 
to the attacks that we face. And that's why he says, do not, um, he says, in the midst of this sojourners, here's what he says, know that you're a sojourner and an exile, right? And then what? Abstain from the passions of the, of the flesh. Abstain from the passions that were fitted to your old kingdom and live in the pursuits of your new kingdom which war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, keep your conduct among sinners, is what he's saying, keep your conduct among sinners honorable, keep your conduct among sinners honorable, represent, represent Christ here in this fallen world. If we lose sight of, who, if we lose sight of this journey that we're on, we will become discouraged and defeated and we will want to quit. And we will want to run. And we will want to get away. We need to know that we're here as pilgrims. God has placed us. We're a chosen generation. God has placed us in this generation, in this season, in this time, in Hollister, California, on 6th and Monterey Street, to be a witness of the gospel of Christ. If we don't embrace that, we will fall prey to flesh, to sin, to discouragement, to depression, because we won't embrace who we are and what we're doing. Hebrews eleven sixteen, the Bible says, but as it is, it's talking about the Jews when they, when they left Egypt. He says, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. They, des- they desired, they, they, because of what they had seen with God, they no longer wanted Egypt. They wanted, they wanted something that was better. We can't become satisfied with where we're at because we have something better. Number three. So we see, first of all, the fact that their position didn't change. Their pilgrimage didn't change. No matter what their circumstances were, their pilgrimage didn't change. And then the thirdly is their purpose didn't change. Their purpose was the same throughout all of the process. And he tells us what their purpose was. In, in, in much of this, he says... But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. That you might proclaim. The idea of proclaiming is that you might, you might manifest, you might reveal, you might expose the God who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. This is what witnessing is. This is Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20 to the T. Go ye into all the world and make disciples. How do we make disciples? By proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his, into his marvelous light. Think, think about it this way. Your greatest witness of the gospel is your testimony. It is what has God done through you? How did God bring you out of darkness into marvelous light? People, people get saved. They get excited about Christ. They go and they tell their friends and their loved ones about what Jesus did for them. And then they start learning theology. And they think, oh, I can't tell my testimony anymore because I don't know enough theology. And what they do is they become quiet Christians. What the Lord wants is to proclaim the excellencies of the God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just tell them your story. Tell them your story. Proclaim, live out, manifest what God has done for you. There's not a person in this building this morning that is a Christian, a follower of Christ, 
that God has not done amazing things for. Amazing things for. Supernatural things for. None of us doesn't have a story. I think I said that right. We all have a story. (laughs) Right? We all have a testimony. We all have a witness. I wonder sometimes, and and I'm just sharing this with you guys as your pastor and as your friend. I wonder sometimes how theological we've become as Christians and how little we share with other people what God is doing in our world. How, how little we, we reach out and say, hey, I just want to tell you what, what's happening in my life right now and what God is doing and, and telling them of the excellencies of the God who, who, saved, who created us to begin with and then the one who saved us. I'm guilty. Of saying, I'm, not, I'm not preaching at you guys. I'm preaching at me. Because that's the challenge. I, was, I had the privilege, I, I was on the, a flight this last, a couple of weeks ago, and I had the privilege of sitting by a guy. And I'll, if you ever want to hear the whole story, come and ask me, because it's an amazing story. God, like, sovereignly worked out the details of this, like, meeting. And I, we, he was a surfer. He's from San Jose. And he's like, man, he's like, my God is when I go out into the waters, and I'm just out there. And it's like, man, this nature, and this is amazing. And I said, listen. I was like, that's perfectly fine. It's like, you know, that is a beautiful and marvelous thing. I said, what if I, what if I came to you with a, with a really beautiful painting and you thought that painting was amazing, but you refused to recognize me as the painter of that thing? Would you be missing something? Would there be something more than just the beautiful painting that you could experience by accepting the one who had painted the painting? And I asked him, wouldn't it be greater if you went out on that great water with all those great animals, all the things that he was talking about? I said, wouldn't it be better if you went out onto that water and you realized that there was somebody who made it all? And that you didn't just give honor to the creation, but you gave honor to the one who created it? And you know what he said to me? He said, that's a really interesting thought. We, we, changed, we talked for two and a half hours, so you guys know how much I can talk. So <laughs> we talked, for, he, he could talk pretty good too, and and we talked for two and a half hours and just really, we changed phone numbers at the end. It was really an amazing thing. We, I got in the, I, got in the uh, I was getting my luggage from the rack, and it was funny because we shook hands and we hugged and we went our separate ways. And this guy came over to me and he's like, he's like, hey, he's like, I just want you to know that I was interceding for you about two rows back. He's like, I knew that you were witnessing to that guy. And he's like, the Lord just pricked my heart to be praying for that. So here's a guy. This is all supernatural. Here's a guy sitting two rows behind us. He wasn't there by accident. And he said, I didn't hear everything. I just heard Jesus. And I just heard a few things that were enough that I knew that something good was happening. And so we had this, this moment of encouragement to each other. That was such a blessing. But you know something? In that moment, it wasn't about theology. It was about this great God. And I suppose that's theology, but... It's about this great God who had done something spectacular for me, and I wanted him to know about it as well. That would take his experience of being in the water by all these huge animals, and it will take it to a whole new level that he can connect with the one who made all that. So our purpose doesn't change. We're to proclaim the, we're to proclaim the excellencies of the one who created us and the one who saved us. He goes on to say, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against the soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable 
Here's our purpose, so that they may speak against you as evildoers, so that when they speak you against evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our, our role is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ as he has worked in us, and our role is to manifest this so that others might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what we're called to do. Our purpose is, it's interesting. Uh, one time I had a person ask me, they were, this person was in a wheelchair. They, they had lots of limitations. And they asked me, they're like, Pastor John, what can I do for the Lord? And my comment to them was, listen, the Lord's purposes are not different for somebody in a wheelchair or somebody out of a wheelchair. God's purposes are not hindered by our frailties. God's purpose rise above our frailties. Matter of fact, God's purposes are greatest manifest when we have frailties. It's God's purpose for me is the same person for God's purpose who's laying in a, in a hospital bed dying. It's the same purpose for somebody who's in a wheelchair. It's the same pers- pur- purpose for somebody who has abilities like, like a basketball player, or a pro football player. God's purpose for all of us is exactly the same and it's not limited by any of our abilities at all. Isn't that good to know? We have to be reminded of that sometimes, don't we? Especially when we're going to face difficulty and the devil's going to try to smash us into the ground. We have to be reminded of the fact that, listen, God's purpose for me doesn't change whether I have great blessing or whether I'm under great trial. God's purpose for me stays the same. The last thing this morning, the last thing that we we need to be reminded of as we face these challenges and difficulties is that our, our pursuit is the same. He gives us in these last um, several verses, he gives us some basic instruction. And I'm not going to give you the instruction. I would encourage you to read it. He tells, it, he tells you how to function towards others. He tells you to how to function towards government. He tells you how to function towards employers. He tells you how to function in the midst of great problems and difficulties and persecutions. You, you can see all of that. He tells them how they can function in all different kinds of challenges, right? Even government challenges, we, we know what that's like. We're in a government, we're in a season where politics is really, really prominent. Peter gives them instruction on how to deal with when, when there's really, really problems in the political realm. But here's what I want you to notice. It's just found in one verse. It, it's found in other verses, but this is, the, this is the, 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 the first time and maybe the most pronounced time. He says this. In verse 13, be subject, you get this, every one of these things, he says, be subject to your masters, be subject to your government, be subject to your employers, right? But here's what he says in this this one verse, be subject for the, what's the next two words? Be subject for the Lord's sake. Our pursuit, our pursuit, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what our troubles are, no matter what our trials are, our pursuit is to live in such a way that we bring praise and honor to the one who created us and to the one who saved us. Our pursuit never changes. The Lord's desire is that we pursue His glory in every circumstance and in every situation. Did you know that the pursuit, no different than the purpose, our purpose never changes or, and it's not hindered by problems, is it? But not only that, did you know that our pursuit is not hindered by our problems either? Matter of fact, our pursuit should be magnified by our problems. 
Because it is in the midst of our problems that we have the greatest opportunity to show, to show forth the glories of Christ. The apostles were set apart, weren't they? Were the apostles set apart to glorify God? Would you guys agree with that? Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. The apostles were set apart to glorify God, right? Were the apostles set apart to glorify God in good times or in bad times? Was their life a manifestation of everything going well? Or was their life a manifestation of everything going pretty bad? Do you know something? Their pursuit didn't change based upon their circumstances. Paul and Silas are in prison. and like, oh man, I'm pursuing earthly comforts now. I need to get out of here, right? No, what are they doing? Singing praises to their God. Why? Because their pursuit was simple. It was For the Lord's sake, I'm going to submit to this situation. To the Lord's sake, I'm going to submit to these circumstances. For the Lord's sake, I'm going to submit to these people. For the Lord's sake is what our pursuit is and what our purpose is. We live a life for his glory and for his sake. So as we think about, I'm not a prophet. Let's say I'm not a prophet nor a son of one. I um, don't know what the future has. I know that it's possible that we could face greater challenges than we're facing today. It's probably likely that we're going to face greater challenges than we do today. We might have a reprieve for our season, and then we might be right back into the same thing again, right? Listen, my challenge to you is is that you would have a heart that knows who you are, knows what your pilgrimage is, knows what your purpose is, and knows what your pursuit is, and therefore, whatever challenge comes your way, you are unwavering. And that's simply what Peter is doing for his people as he writes this, and it's what he's doing for us as he writes this as well. And I hope and pray that it will be an encouragement to your heart. Go home and read the rest of that section because I think it will unfold some things as God leads us in this life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this uh, time together, for a place to come and worship you. Thank you for the... um, really the freedoms restored, if you will, to be able to be in the building today. And we pray that you would sustain that. We would even be able to move further in the right direction. We also pray, Lord, that you would bless your church, that you would um, grow us spiritually, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, that we would see the salvation that you have provided for us as amazing, that we would want to share it with others, that we would want to embrace it, that it would bring joy and difficulty and trials and stability as well. We pray your blessing upon this time today. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen.